All right. Special edition. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Zoe and I saw the Maltese Falcon last weekend, and we're just in theaters. We're dying to talk about it. We saw it at a theater at Central Cinema here in Seattle. It was really fantastic. I mean, I've probably seen it seven, eight, nine times. Um, you've seen it how many times? Three, I think. Three times? This is your third time. Third time's a charm. Yeah. I, I really got a lot this the time. The first time we watched it, Zoe was in maybe middle school, mm-hmm. and she did not like it. Nope, didn't want. To, I don't think we fin- even finished it. You just were. You, you what you do is you would sit there when this would happen. You'd sit there, and there'd just be this stony, sullen energy to you. It's like. I don't want to watch this. You wouldn't say anything. You'd just sit there like in this sullen, stony kind of attitude. And I'd say, all right, fine. <laughs> you don't have to watch it. <laughs> yeah. I felt like, I don't know, it black just, and white movies just are like just it. harder to watch. Yeah. yeah well, me. I think also um, the Maltese Falcon is comes from a novel written by Dashiell Hammett. And it was, so it's a 1941 film that's in a 1930s kind of zeitgeist, a hard-boiled detective with a lot of fast talking, a lot of, it's very stylized, and if you come into it with no reference point, it can be, for me, it was an absolute delight. I probably watched it the first time when I was your age, too, on TV. Uh, Of course, I chose to. And I was overwhelmed with joy, with when you taste the best thing you've ever tasted in your life and you just keep thinking about it and you just want more. To me, that's what it was. And so that was what I was trying to share with you. But you being born in 1993, having completely different cultural, social development than I did, it did not speak to you. That's real clear. <laughs> not to mention, I you know, I was in my phase, which maybe was a teenager phase more commonly, where I was like, I got to find what I like on my own. Yeah, don't, Mom, don't tell me. Don't tell it to me, Mom. <laughs> that was something Zoe would say when she was two. She'd say, don't tell it to me. So that's when you hear that, that's a reference to that. Yeah, there is that. But also at the time, you were very into anime. Anime mm-hmm. was really your cultural world, I think. Uh, it was what you loved. Anything that you watched was really that. And there would be times you would allow me to show you a film sometimes basically even if we watched it to the end i think the energy was such that it didn't go into your eyeballs yeah no it didn't go into at all that's how i felt and that's why i didn't like it because i was like i didn't retain any of that i don't know what was going on there was nothing that caught my interest in this film right exactly and so now that you have a huge um greater uh breadth of experience in film and older film and black and white film and all that what did you think of it this time I loved it. And I think sometime around high school, maybe because of anime, like Cowboy Bebop, which is a, mm. an anime that actually seats itself in a noir genre, I really like opened my heart to noir and got really interested in the hard-boiled stuff. But then the second time we watched it, I really enjoyed it. But I, I think I was taking in certain things. And this time I feel like I had enough of like a master seat to like be, follow the plot and then also pay attention to the nuance because there's a lot of detail and a lot of background detail and a lot of good acting and everything that's in this film. So I, I feel like I finally like came into it. It's a rewatchable one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is something where I've gotten something different out of it each time, either because I was different, of course, but also because my eye became sharper and sharper. And this time I watched it, and I'm going, oh my God, I'm picking up all kinds of nuance in the acting and what the actors are doing and how they're placed and their, you know, the gestures and their, their expressions that I had never picked up before. So uh, let's give it. Let's get into a little bit of detail or factual information about the film, and then then we can get on to talking about our opinions. Sounds good.
Okay, first of all, this film was, uh, as I said earlier, is an adaptation of a book by Dashiell Hammett, who was one of the key and most important hard-boiled detective writers, uh, who really was one of the people who created the genre. And it was filmed in 1941, so it was before America got into the war, but the war across the way was raging. There's no uh, indication of that in the film. There's no reference to it at all. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, the the director and the stars, uh, along with the script, are what made it. I think it was the second directorial feature by John Huston, and who is, for any of you know who Angelica Huston is, that's her dad. He was the director. He was young hungry director as starring Humphrey Bogart who was a good pal of his Mary Astor who's a, an actress I just love and who never got enough opportunity to show what a great artist she was it's a real shame but being a woman a lot of it had to do with being a woman and also her personal life was pretty scandal ridden when she was younger in the 1930s so that kind of held her back too and then there's also just a plethora of great actors there's Peter Lorre there's Sidney Greenstreet. There's one of our favorite, Elijah Cook Jr. Adore him. Let's see, who else is in there? Um, there's Jerome Gowan, who a lot of people will know uh, if they've watched a lot of old movies as a character actor. And then Lee Patrick plays the just a great role as uh, Sam Spade's secretary. She's just terrific and really adds to the hard-boiled atmosphere. Mm -hmm. She might be kind of the key in for like maybe younger people are watching or young women that are watching oh, this movie too. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. We'll come back to that. And I do want to note, even though I was talking about John Huston as the director, that he actually adapted the book. So he did the screenplay, which I think is amazing. I mean, John Huston is one of those kind of, to my mind, a little bit toxic-y male privileged guys He's in one of my favorite bad movies, he The is. Visitor, he which is. we talk about in a previous episode. Yeah, when he's really old, really, really <laughs> old and, and losing it. Uh, but he's just one of those guys, smoke and drink and not faithful, not really, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't like a horrible person, you know, like horrible, but he was that kind of man, but yet talented, so talented and, and, and created so many really wonderful things. So I've got to give him a lot of credit for that. At least I've never heard of anything really horrible that he did. Um, so there were so many things that came up as we were watching this film that were, were true that truly excited us. And mm -hmm. um, first of all, I just want to say it has a classic noir look, the light, the shadows. And even though uh, it doesn't take place all at night or even predominantly at night, there's enough night things. But even the daylight, the shadows uh, coming through the archer and spade window. It's one of the most famous shots in screen history in the beginning where um, the light is coming through and you see the shadow of the name of the firm on the on the floor in, of the office. And I think the camera pans down to it. Yeah, and that's, it, yeah there's something there. There's something like really... Masterwork of genius. It's a, John Huston really is up there with like an Alfred Hitchcock in terms of his ability to tell a story visually. He doesn't need... I mean, there's voiceover here. But there's not a lot of voiceover. He does it more for effect mm -hmm. than he does for the need, oh, I have to do this to tell a story. Uh, he's able to set the the scene, the emotion, the just the, the, the pathos, the, the visceral experience of that time and place brings you into it and you feel it, you're being it, you know, at the same time. And of course, it's total fantasy. It never existed in real life and never could. But that's the that's what makes this movie fan 
fantastic. Yes, there's great dialogue. Yes, there's snappy uh, interchanges. Repartee, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, there's cool cool activities going on with cigarettes and drinks. Yeah. And, and so there's forth. a lot of subtext yeah. and stuff that you can read into. But it's really, I have to say, the more I think about it, it's Houston bringing together these actors having adapted it, they got to give him tons of credit for that, and then pulling it together like a, a master puppeteer, if you will. He reminds me of uh, this uh, great impresario called Diaghilev, who brought together the great ballet Nijinsky and Pavlova and great artists like uh, Box Benoit and uh, uh, choreographers and created this revolution in ballet. Hmm. Well, Okay, this isn't a revolution because this was part of the zeitgeist at the time, but it's the best of the zeitgeist and is the, the cutting edge of the zeitgeist. And Houston really, at this time, this early in his career, was really his peak. He was amazing how he brought all of these aspects together. So, yeah, I love Bogart. I love Mary Astor. I love all of these things. I can take each thing individually, but he brought them together and made them even more than a sum of their parts. And I know, I don't know, I've heard people criticize and say they didn't like it, it was boring, it was old. They are just wrong. This is a timeless masterpiece. It just, it's it's visceral to the human spirit. Damn. All right. I, I, that's how I feel about it. So much passion. Oh, that's I, awesome. I love it so much. <laughs> yeah. I'm know. glad I get it now because I do get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know. You came up kind of excited about it, too. Yeah, totally. I think it's the first time you really got it. I mean, yeah. you, you liked it the second time you mm-hmm. watched it, but this time, yeah, yeah, with your maturité. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have, like, one or two film student questions that you may or may not know the answer I'll to. I'll try. Um, one, where does the Maltese Falcon actually sit in the canon? Like, is it is it considered one of the greatest mm-hmm. noirs? I, I could be wrong. But I believe it's on the uh, AFI, which is the American Film Institute, one, top 100 films of all time. Cool. I believe it's on there. It's definitely canon in the noir, like up there with Double Indemnity. I have to say, I adore Double Indemnity. Adore it. But I would place this higher. Mm. Okay. We'll what about you? Re- we'll have to rewatch that one because I watched that when I was so young. And oh, I, really? I liked that one the first time. Oh, I guess I watched but... it with my friends recently. Yeah. And I, I thought I'd watched it with you. Uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. definitely should see that again. And see what you think in terms comparing it to Double Indemnity, which is another noir, which I think was done in 1939. It was only a couple of years earlier, or maybe a couple of years later. I could be completely wrong. I don't know about my dates. Anyway, right, they're in the same time frame. Uh, but that's Billy Wilder. And there's certainly a lighter touch to it. And Billy Wilder and his writing partner wrote the script or adapted. Uh, I think they wrote it. It's very, very good. But... Maltese Falcon is richer in detail, mm. for one thing. And from my, my experience of it, in a way, oddly enough, shuts down my mind so that I'm in much more of a purely experiential mode as I'm watching it, you know? Yeah, totally. That's, that's how I feel about it. But anyway, yeah, so it, it's definitely canon. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Question number two, was it filmed uh, before or during the Hayes Code? Oh, after. After, okay. Yeah, during. During. During, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and there was, in the book, there's a lot more about the sexuality. Uh, first of all, the sexual nature of the relationship between Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor, who are the male and female lead. And there's also uh, definite allusions in the movie to homosexuality, that the char- mm-hmm. some of the characters are homosexual, and the book can be much clearer about it. In fact, the book... 
reflected the language of the time and the attitudes of the time. I don't know that they were necessarily the author's attitudes per se, but it was certainly the attitudes of the, of the characters in the book, which were homophobic. So they used those homophobic terms that were so offensive at the time outright in the book to call people things. So it was definitely, homosexuality was definitely in the book. Okay, yeah. And and I really picked up on that this time, just watching the movie. And that was one of the things that interested me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was very interesting the way they skirted it, but alluded to it. At this mm-hmm. So if you were in the know, you knew what was going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. I just wanted to give you a couple more facts about it. This was not the first adaptation of the book. In 1930, there was another movie, the Maltese Falcon, same title, which I have watched, and it starred Ricardo Cortez and B.B. Daniels. And Ricardo Cortez is really was really a high-energy, bouncy kind of guy, uh, fast-talking, wisecracking, but he, he never became an A-list star. And I think, and he wasn't bad-looking, so it wasn't because he wasn't good-looking. He just doesn't have the, I don't know, something about Bogart or any of those stars who are, you know, really top A-list stars that they've got kind of a stickiness that they stick to you. Their energy field, their persona becomes such a fixture in your own mind. And Ricardo Cortez, there's no way. He was just, he fulfilled the role. It was disposable. It was fine. And that was pre-Hayes Code. Mm. So there's definitely more clarity about the relationships and so forth. I mean, honestly, honestly. Pre-Hayes Code, most of those movies, they were harmless. (laughs) They were tame. I mean, they might talk about stuff was basically it. They didn't really show much of anything. You know, there wasn't like there was blood. It wasn't like you were watching people, you know, having sexual relations or anything like that. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Anyway, so the movie's very tame, so don't worry about it. And Bebe Daniels, I don't even remember her. I can't even picture her in my mind in this in this film. So the 1930s film is really only worth watching if you're just our completist or you just really want to see the comparison. It's not even in the same league. And I guess there was another comedy, a comedy version made of it called Satan Met a Lady, oh. which I've never seen. But it has Betty Davis in it. Interesting. Which is weird. We should watch it. Yeah, we should. It isn't supposedly very good. It, Betty Davis is always interesting. I know. She, she's back when they would have made it would have been, I think she would have been, you know, kind of the young Betty Davis, the young, hungry Betty Davis. So that would <laughs> be very interesting. Anyway, so those are some of the facts. And then the other bits were um, Bogart was still fairly early in his career as, well, maybe not too early, but he had been playing district attorneys. He'd been mm. playing the good guys. He'd huh. been playing, yeah, exactly. Um, Bogart actually came from a wealthy family. He oh. seems like he's a street guy. You yeah, know, totally. Tough. That's his he's persona. a tough, yeah. But he actually came from a pretty wealthy family, kind of a trust fundy family. And one of his first roles ever as an actor, he, he played on the stage first. He came into a room and said, Tennis anyone? <laughs> <laughs> so he played kind of the young ingenue guy. You just don't see that at all for him. But this is, he really comes into his own here, and he's still fairly new. And uh, Houston, as I said, this is only his second feature. And uh, so basically the studio is taking kind of a risk here. And part of it was the studio said, this movie is running a little long. Can you speed it up? 
and they didn't want to, and Houston didn't want to cut anything because I mean, uh, there's nothing to be cut. It was there's no fat it on is this. Spare, yeah. He just told the actors to talk, talk faster. Talk faster. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly told. Awesome. And you see them; they're talking fast. Yeah. The Bogart, uh, Mary Astor. I mean, they they're just talking a mile a minute. It's so funny. That's awesome. But it works. Oh, totally. Yeah. It, the film really creates its own world with its own. Logic and yeah, that's and, and that's the pattern, that's the style, that's how people talk in that world. And what's funny is that at first you listen to it, it's fast, and that's part of one of the reasons why it's rewatchable because you miss stuff, you, you get it. I mean, you get what's going on, but you miss things uh, because of the speed of the of the talk. And uh, oh god, it's just so. I guess maybe uh, maybe we should go next. Is what what was like maybe one of your favorite moments? One of my favorite moments, probably near the beginning of the film not to spoil anything but are we going to spoil i guess we should confer with our audience and say should we go ahead and spoil or not i won't spoil the very end the nature of it yeah i would say yeah well we can talk about the setup and what happens i don't yeah i don't don't think it matters too much if we talk about what happened as we go along i mean the movie is like what is it 80 years old Mm -hmm. or something like that um but i we won't spoil like the actual ending. Right. There's no need to do that. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Well, actually, okay, so it's a little later on. One of my favorite moments, though, is when one of the main um, characters is introduced, and Sam Spade is in his office at night doing something, and then um, a fancy client comes in. Oh, well, we'll just say it's Peter Lorre. Yeah, Peter Lorre. You're going to have to supply all Play- the oh, actors' oh, okay. names for Play- me. Peter Lorre playing Joel Cairo. Yes. This is a great character. He might be my favorite character. Well, Joel Cairo, and and just uh, you probably don't have the background on this, but and I don't know if our listener or ers <laughs> if we have any whatsoever uh, would know this, but he always played, tended to play. In fact, he was famous as like the murderer mm. or the uh, the villain. Uh, he played he played the title role in M, which was a Fritz Lang movie in Germany where he was a child murderer. Oh wow! Yeah, so so the, he's a very interesting. Apparently, he was the nicest guy in the world in real life. He was actually uh, apparently if people didn't tip enough, he'd go back to the table and put more money on the table and stuff <laughs> like you. He, uh, he does have kind of an interesting mixture of like he can you can tell that he can turn on the sinister yeah. in the movie, but he's also do, he's very likable and somehow that's not conflicting or weird. Yeah, um, he's not creepy or anything. So yeah. He he comes into the or so Effie the secretary of Sam the detective comes into the office and gives him the business card and he sniffs it and she's like gardenia and he's like <laughs> show the gentleman in because they realize that he must be a fancy pants with lots of money and, and it, well I think that the, the no I think that the hint was he's gay that too it's sort of like show the gay guy in uh huh yeah totally and and in, in a kind of a smirking like okay you know mm-hmm. yeah. And he is, I mean, he's very much a, like the stereotypical, like flamboyant queer of the movie where he's like super well dressed and he's always like playing with things near his mouth and he has like the perfect like tux and stuff. Well, and he's and got the, a perm. And the, yeah. And the facetious nature of his, or the coy nature of the way he talks and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a really hard time clearly telling uh, anecdotes about like specific <laughs> moments. We just made this this like whole realization about how I have a terrible memory and I can't like remember anything and I have a really time hard time telling stories about specific events. 
And it, I guess that's just the way I am, because I can talk about characters and themes all fucking day. But, yeah. Anyway, I oh. love the introduction to that character. <laughs> Let's move Joel on. Joel Cairo. Okay. <laughs> you can talk about the themes later. Okay. One of my favorite moments in the, in the movie is something that I didn't really cotton to until maybe the last time I watched it. And there's a scene between Bogart and Bridget O'Shaughnessy, played by the great Mary Astor, who should be should be canonized. She should, should be, be she's wonderful. Does she have anyway, a star on Hollywood? She should. She's and she is uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. The character is she's playing a deep game. She is on the surface trembly and knee and womanish and you know from that time these are all terms of that time womanish and you know oh just really fragile needing a protector and and so and that and that vulnerability that she opens up implicitly opens her up to sexual conquest sexual availability and she knows that i mean that's what she's doing she's playing that game she's not She's not voluptuous. I mean, she's a pretty woman, but she's not a gorgeous. She's no Ava Gardner. She's no Rita Hayworth. So she isn't a siren. She isn't the the femme fatale that lures men onto the rocks by her uh, buxom beauty. She's the kind who lures the men onto the rocks by her vulnerability. And he walks through the door. And once he walks through the door, the door shuts behind him. And he is at her mercy. He is her protector her sl- and her slave. I mm-hmm. mean, and throughout the film you will see references to the men before her who have fallen because uh and and she doesn't care. She's probably the most um psychopathic film fatale I've ever seen in any film ever. It's really fascinating cuz she's, she's such fantastic. a different type and that's what makes this movie so um, high and, and amazing in the genre. Right. There's so much like depth and layers to it and it's not none of the characters are just flat roles or stereotypes. Right. And she's just fantastic. Anyway so there's a scene where um, she's uh, talking to him about um, that she's afraid and these, these men are after her and they'll kill her and please Mr. Spade be kind. You're strong. Be kind. And he then says to her, oh, you're good. So he sees it. He sees through her, but he's still com- almost completely drawn in mm-hmm. until the end. Mm-hmm. But, and, and of course, he, he kind of has to be, but um, unlike in um, a later film, Body Heat, where the guy is drawn in all the way to the end and beyond, um, here he is, he is drawn in at first, even though he sees, oh, you're good. Oh, and this little tremble in your voice. Well, actually, after having seen it and getting to know the dialogue after several times, when I heard her do it again uh, last time I watched it, I heard there was actually a tremble in her voice. She actually put a tremble in her voice. It was very subtle. It was very small. It wasn't a big tremble, but it was there. So she was picking up on and and um, I won't say reacting to because she did it beforehand, but having read the script... She knew he was going to say that, so she placed the tremble in her voice, and she did it really well so that it isn't even something that you notice right away, but it's there. So that's one of my favorite scenes. And then my other favorite scene or scenes is anything with Wilmer in it. And yeah. Wilmer is played by Elisha Cook that Jr. That's what I was going to say, too. Yeah. yeah. Elisha Cook Jr., who is a character actor who uh, he acted for, Oh, God, until he's quite elderly. He had like a 50-year career. So you see him in a lot of other movies. And I've seen him in other things. And he's always bug-eyed and tense. He's like that little nervy guy who's um, just like, God, don't turn your back on this this guy. He's dangerous. He's even dangerous. Even though he's like 
kind of pitiful. He's yeah. pitiful and dangerous at the same time. Uh, that's a great description. He in this one he's still young. He's still a younger guy, and he plays basically the. Uh, the stooge, the, the toy boy stooge. Yeah, there's a like again reference where he might be in a like gay relationship with his boss. Well, he, the 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 uh, Sam Spade calls him the guy's Gunsel, and Gunsel actually people I think thought meant meant gunman, right? But the word actually means catamite, which means mm-hmm. the sec the the younger homosexual lover mm-hmm. of uh, a man. Hmm. So they were definitely putting it in there, and it definitely was their relationship. But um, poor, poor Wilmer. Wilmer was just a pawn. Yeah, totally. And because you might think that his his uh, role in the film would be kind of throwaway, or would be kind of a just there to be like an unknown factor, whether he's going to be violent or not. But he's really he's a pillar in each scene that he's in, yeah. where you're watching him, and he's so tense, and where his hand goes near his gun, and like, is he? dull is he dumb or is he like highly affected by everything everyone's saying like well he's obviously highly affected to my mind because yeah. his eyes are always big he's always like it's almost like he's always on the verge of crying yeah totally i mean totally. Poor, poor wilmer yeah <laughs> he really got the short end of the stick but yeah. the acting is fantastic so you definitely if you watch it when you watch this keep your eyes on him he's so fantastic and and he's not very effective he's very mm-hmm. dangerous he's like the kind of thing where he could like just pop off and just shoot somebody like in a martin scorsese film where yeah. the people are very unstable and very unpredictable but at the same time he's not he's not very effective I and mean, yeah he's not powerful no not at all now getting to being not effective let's roll back here and go to the top of the list of the actors and talk about humphrey bogart now humphrey bogart himself is supremely effective here mm-hmm. this is his role, and he's so good. This is the kind of role that, to me, the thing about Bogart is he's always Bogart. He's always got that same voice. He's always got that same lisp. He's always got that same kind of persona. What you see here is that persona, yet underneath the persona, he's adding to it as an actor. He's adding nuance to it as an actor. And I really find that it's kind of fantastic that he plays a tough guy, Right. Yep. The slick guy who's in slick control. Guy. He always has something to say to someone. And 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 the thing is, he's su- he's smarter than everybody in the room. That he really sees what's going on. Yet, he somehow is not conscious enough or not wary enough, and he falls right into the trap. Mm-hmm. He just walks in multiple times. <laughs> he's really not that good of a detective. No, he's a terrible detective. <laughs> he's great at like he. I mean, he, he gets follows, roofied he, in this. Yeah, <laughs> dude. Yeah, he follows through, and so that's how he makes it all the way to the end. But he like, yeah, he's drinking drinks that his enemy gives to him <laughs> just because he he thinks he's so like they're so I don't know doing a mental battle that he he doesn't think they'd slip something in his drink. Whatever. And he's just not watching. Yeah. You know, he. It, th- there's a certain level of unconsciousness that is mm-hmm. just surprising. And it's so it's so great. He's, he reminds me a little bit of Paul Drake in the Perry Mason series with <laughs> Raymond Burr. Who's, he's oh. always losing. I lost a Perry. He's, he's losing the guy losing. he's tailing, getting guns pulled on him. Yeah, like. I know. It's stuff like that. Yet, yet, you, you have the feeling that he is sort of the ultra competent guy because of his demeanor and his patter and it's really pretty interesting his persona is just so perfect it's like he almost believes it himself because he's putting it on so hard 
and if I was going to write an essay about this film, I told you before, um, for like a film class or something, the thing that I'd hone in on was the smoking and drinking in this film. Everybody does a lot. Everybody does a lot of smoking, a lot of drinking, and... That's the kid, like, rear window rewatching that surprised me. I was like, Jesus Christ, they must be drunk the whole time. No wonder they're <laughs> questioning, like, whether they're, like, what they're seeing is real or not. Um, and it's the same here, but you can see kind of the shift from the beginning of the movie. He He's always rolling his own cigarettes. So there's this pouch of tobacco that's always around. It's, like, on his bedside table. It's on his desk. And he's rolling his own cigarettes. He's talking to people and in control of the conversation. And so, but as the movie goes on and the pace picks up and he starts to, like, have too many threads to keep track of, and he stop, starts making mistakes, like getting roofied. He He's smoking less. He doesn't have time to smoke his cigarettes anymore. He's not in control anymore, and he starts drinking more, and then he gets roofied. So that's probably what I would write my essay about. Well, and speaking of uh, the having the that pouch of tobacco around, there's a, a shot early in the film, and another one that you'll really want to watch for, that's a fantastic establishing shot for the, the character of Sam Spade. It's a visual statement about who he is, yet there's no voiceover. You don't even see Sam Spade except for his hand in the film, and that's where he gets a phone call early in the morning, uh, so early that it's still dark out, and they show the phone ringing, and you see everything that's on his table. Mm -hmm. You see a book that he's been reading. Well, lovely listeners, we have a little bit of sad news about this uh, episode. We lost about half of our scintillating, delightful conversation. We're really, really sorry. Um, So we're posting what we have, and we'll take every effort in the future to make sure that nothing gets lost. Okay, the gist of this episode is watch the Maltese Falcon over and over. Suck all the juice out of it. Enjoy it, love it, and you will have your life enhanced. We are so thrilled that you listen to this. I don't think we have any listeners, but if we do, very, very exciting. And we want to add an email so you can contact us. And what else do we want to say? I think that's about it. Thank you. God, anybody who listens to this is amazing. That's true. We love you. Um, We love it. And we want to hear from you and tell us if there's anything you would like us to watch and review. No porn. No porn, as we said before, um, and <laughs> yeah. no, and and no horror, no like really ghastly, horrible horror. We like some horror, but some horror, but it's got to be like tame horror, not horrible or psychological horror. Yeah, yeah, not bloody, gross horror. Mm-hmm. Okay, but other than that, we'll we'll watch things, and we will we would be happy to review them for you. Yeah, because we love you and love thank you. you. This is Bye. been foibles. Bye, Vino Verde.